Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. Now look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation. From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Adam Kempinar. And I'm Josh Larson. I am queen of the most powerful nation in the world! And my entire family is gone! Have I not given everything? That's Angela Bassett in the trailer for Wakanda Forever, the highly anticipated follow-up to Marvel's Black Panther. Though a sequel to the Best Picture nominee was inevitable, it was complicated by the tragic passing of the film's star, Chadwick Boseman. How Marvel moves forward with the Black Panther story is one of the questions we have about the fall movie season, which also sees new releases from Steven Spielberg, Olivia Wilde, and Martin McDonough. Those questions and more in our fall movie preview ahead on film spotting. Welcome to film spotting. Josh, it's not Labor Day yet, but we have sent a couple of kids off to college. Our younger kids are headed back to school or soon will be. Let's face it, summer's gone. It is fall. Not for me. I measure fall, Adam. The new place we moved, the building Uh has a pool. When they shut down the pool, that's when it's fall. I think I've got mm, 10 days left, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to savor those as long as I can and hope for some good sun. I think someday we may all adopt the Josh Larson condo pool calendar. There you It'll go. It'll be good for all of us. <laughs> we are going to share our fall movie preview the way film spotting always does in the form of our top five questions about the fall movie year. We did the same with summer a few months back, and we did the same back in January when we looked ahead to the entire movie year. A little bit of restriction here, Josh, or the criterion that we put in place is that we don't go through the end of the year. A lot of fall movie previews you see online do that. I'm not entirely sure why we don't. Sometimes it's because we like to think that is the holiday movie season, Thanksgiving, to Christmas or through the end of the year, we like to look at this time, really Labor Day up through Thanksgiving. Yeah. And now that I think about it, it's not because we do a holiday movie preview. Though we have. We have. Okay. I think we have, and, and we would probably always like to, but the reality is once you hit around Thanksgiving, it's catch-up time, right? It's mm-hmm. award screener time. And we're just scrambling to watch the things that we have, let alone worry about previewing what's coming. So, yeah, for our purposes, we're just looking at the next couple of months. That's it. So 
why don't you start us off with your number five question of the upcoming fall movie season? Will She Said be an All the President's Men slash spotlight for the Me Too moment? Now, that's a lot of pressure, I realize, but those excellent journalism dramas, they seem to be the models for She Said. This is an account of the New York Times 2017 series breaking the sexual harassment case against Harvey Weinstein. Carrie Mulligan and Zoe Kazan play the reporters who broke and followed the story. Solid cast there. The script, which is based on Times journalists Megan Tuohy and Jody Cantor's memoir, is written by Rebecca Lenkowitz, interestingly, a British writer who worked on Steve McQueen's Small Act series, so also promising. Now, the director is Maria Schrader, a German filmmaker who previously made the well-received I'm Your Man, starring Dan Stevens. Did not catch that one myself, but I do remember people seem to largely like it. So I'm going to be interested to see what these across-the-Atlantic perspectives will bring to what is an American story. If it has half the rigor, half the integrity, and the artistry of President's Men, for sure, and even Spotlight, too— I do think we're in for something fairly bracing. So that's She Said, and it will be in theaters November 18, a likely Oscar conversation piece, Mm -hmm. I will say. People have tried to write this story before. He kills it every time. Harvey adamantly denies any allegation of assault. He played people. He was a master manipulator. Will you give me just one chance to talk to you? Are you sure that this isn't just young women who want to sleep with a movie producer to try to get ahead? This is bigger than Weinstein. This is about the system protecting abusers. I understand and can appreciate why you put it in the same discussion as all the president's men. But as you know, I think that's one of the greatest films ever made. And somehow I think she said might fall a little bit more in line with something like Spotlight, a movie I did like quite a bit. I'll say this, and this is just my very quick gut reaction to the trailer and really doesn't portend any future concern about whether or not I will like the movie, but it did stand out to me, Josh, watching it, that there was something about the dialogue, and this happens a lot with biopics, typically, that suggested that everybody involved was aware of the momentousness Hmm. of their subject matter. (laughs) And of course, in the moment, not as if they didn't know why it was important to explore this story and the potential ramifications of it, but these are also professionals. These are people doing their job. And when they talk to each other and when they go down the path of investigating leads or interviewing subjects, they're not thinking about it with the perspective of hindsight. And some of the scenes and some of the exchanges felt like it had that perspective to me. Yeah, and so maybe you hope they're plucking those out and trying to position it as that important Oscar movie. Mm -hmm. And the film itself is rooted in exactly the things President's Men in Spotlight were, the procedure, the process, and making drama out of that everyday work. And at the end of the film, realizing how it all built up to a momentous achievement rather than talking about how momentous it is in the moment. So we'll Mm -hmm. have to keep an eye out for that. My number five fall movie question is a quick one. It's about a movie that I genuinely have among my most anticipated of the next few months, despite the fact that there's not a lot of substance behind it. And that's really the basis for my question. How many letterbox stars does an eight-minute standing ovation translate to, a.k.a. 
with Triangle of Sadness, will Cannes' favorite director become one of my favorite directors? I am speaking of the Swedish filmmaker Ruben Oslin and his second film in a row to win the Palme d'Or at Cannes. I didn't look this up. Has that happened before? And if it has, it certainly has to be rare. He's only made three features that I'm aware of, at least three that really establish him on the international cinema scene. Prior to this film, Triangle of Sadness, we had The Square, and then the movie that put him on the map, Force Majeure. Force Majeure is the only one of those three so far that we talked about in any detail on the show. And I know that we were both fans of that film and had a good conversation about it. Somehow, I didn't manage to even see The Square. Josh, did you? No. Yeah, so we really like Force Majeure. The Square wins the Palme d'Or at Cannes that year. And I don't know what happened. I don't know if it was just a weird sort of end of October 2017 scheduling thing. That's when it saw a limited release here in the States, but we didn't talk about it. And I still haven't caught up with it. Now we've got yet another film that they went crazy for in France, did give it an eight-minute standing ovation when it premiered there, and even Force Majeure won a jury prize, the Un Certain Regard prize. So he is acclaimed, certainly at that festival, but if you look at all three films, there's a host of different international awards he has earned, and he is a fascinating filmmaker, just based on Force Majeure and seeing the the trailers for these other films, that satiric bent that he has. His films are these takedowns of different people, types, industries, niches of society. We've got Force Majeure's satire of masculinity and marriage. The Square was all about the art world, and this film, Triangle of Sadness, is a takedown supposedly, of the decadent, rich, and wealthy, with a bunch of international faces that I'm not familiar with. The Woody Harrelson does appear as a ship captain, and you know I'm always game for a Woody Harrelson appearance. The saints. Do you think it's possible to wash them? I don't think that's possible, ma'am, because this is a motorized vessel. Yeah. So we don't have any sails. It was sails. Yes. Well, then, in that case, we will clean the sails. Yes. Of course. Yes. Triangle of Sadness is coming out October 7th. I think what happened with me, at least, with the square is it had all that acclaim, certainly landed on my radar because of that. Force Majeure, I think, had a chance of squeaking onto my top 10 list the year it came Mm -hmm. out. So, yeah, I, I wanted to see it, but outside of Cannes, the enthusiasm seemed to taper off as other critics saw it. I, I think people liked it. I don't think it was like, you know, anyone was giving it scathing reviews, but the excitement seemed to die down. And I feel like we've had the same pattern with Triangle of Sadness. So that's no reflection on Triangle of Sadness nor on the square. But I do wonder if maybe like his his hot white demo is Can, who just love what he does so much. And outside of that, it's a little bit more of a mixed bag, but certainly one Uh, worth anticipating and looking forward to this fall. My number four question, can Elvis Mitchell make movies too? So Mitchell is, he's long been one of my favorite film critics to read, to listen to from his stint at the New York Times to his interview radio show and podcast, The Treatment. He's 
he's both very generous as a critic, but I also think pitilessly incisive. He loves movies, but he can also nail a movie to the wall if he needs to. This fall, he gives us the documentary, Is That Black Enough For You? And you know how we love punctuation and titles on Film Spotting, Adam. I, I should note then that ends in a question mark, exclamation point, question mark. So already, you know, it's favorable to me. Now, in IndieWire's preview, Eric Cohn described the doc this way. Filtered through the lens of Mitchell's own upbringing, the movie promises to correct the canon of film history by positioning the dominance of blackness on screen in tandem with other major developments within Hollywood and on its margins. Now, to be fair, Elvis Mitchell, he's been a producer or executive producer on previous documentary television series. He was involved with The Blacklist and Elvis Goes There. Is that black enough for you? This is going to mark his debut as a director. So taking another step towards a filmmaker here with this. I have full confidence he'll be able to pull it off. I'm eager to watch it, especially, I think, in the wake of our black exploitation marathon here on the show, Adam, which, believe it or not, I think was 10 years ago yeah. at this point that we wow. did that. So, mm-hmm. so much has changed in, I, I think, my understanding of of black film, the culture's understanding and attention to it. So um, it'll be interesting, particularly when this doc touches on the movies we covered there and just, you know, the broader areas I'm sure it will explore. So is that black enough for you? That comes out November 4, widely available because it's going to be on Netflix. I'm a fan of his work as well, especially on his podcast and radio show, The Treatment, as you mentioned, and as a critic myself who someday still aspires to make my own documentary, I will be watching closely and rooting for Elvis Mitchell. My number four fall movie question harkens back a little bit to a question I posed back in January. How will the director who reimagined the biopic with the assassination of Jesse James by the coward Robert Ford reimagine the tragic tale of Marilyn Monroe. My updated fall movie question, Josh, is which take on the biopic will offer more twisted pleasure? AKA, could a movie about the king of pop culture parody be better than a movie about one of pop culture's most parodied performers? So the latter there being blonde, the former being weird, the Al Yankovic story, which is coming out in November. We've got Netflix versus Roku. Find your Roku channel, Josh, if you want to watch this film. We've got Andrew Dominic versus Eric Apple, who is a filmmaker that, according to his IMDb, has done a lot of television, including some really good TV on Brooklyn Nine-Nine and Silicon Valley. He also made a video short back in 2010 that has the same name, Weird, the Al Yankovic story. This is a semi-fictionalized account, that's how it's being billed, of Weird Al's rise to stardom. And have you seen anything about this film, or do you know the actor who is playing Weird Al, Josh? I do, and for some reason, it strikes me as kind of perfect. I can't explain it, but it fits. It works for me. Daniel Radcliffe, right? Anyone got an accordion? Like a surgeon... It is Daniel Radcliffe, despite the fact that if you know anything about our friends over at the Blank Check podcast, I was sure watching the trailer that it was Griffin Newman. (laughs) 
Daniel Radcliffe playing Weird Al just has more curly hair. But otherwise, that is Griffin Newman. And I'm sorry, Griffin. I think I don't know how he's going to take that. Yeah, I think something went wrong in the casting. And that should have been you in this lead role. Evan Rachel Woods also in the cast. Rain Wilson plays Dr. Demento. Julianne Nicholson also co-stars. And in a preview, I read there's a quote from Radcliffe who said at one point, Weird Al came up to him after shooting a really bizarre scene. And Al said, is that the weirdest thing you've ever had to do? And Radcliffe's answer was, it's top two. The only other one being with Paul Dano riding me like a jet ski at the beginning (laughs) of Swiss Army Man. So, yeah, this film does figure to be pretty out there. And, you know, that makes sense for the subject matter. And I'd expect nothing less as well from a movie like Blonde. I think weird has to be one of the operative words there as well. It stars the Cuban-Spanish brunette actress, Ana de Armas, as Marilyn Monroe. Its trajectory to the big screen is certainly atypical. I think it was announced something like 12 years ago. They started shooting it three years ago. Scads of words have been spilled online about its explicit content. It earned it an NC-17 rating. And I'm pairing these together because they're biopics, obviously, but you have a filmmaker in Dominic who couldn't care less about convention and an artist in Weird Al who made his career off of defying and spoofing convention. Who knows? It could be a great year for the artist biopic. And if it's not, it will surely at least be a weird one. And that's a good thing. So first of all, I looked up a photo of Radcliffe as Yankovic. Well, I'd seen it before, but now that you said that about Griffin, oh my gosh. (laughs) Oh my gosh. Griffin may have a legal case here. So he should should probably pursue that. And um, secondly, I have a Roku device. That's how I stream everything. So presumably that gets me the channel. I hope so. I don't know. I will have to look into that so that I can catch, uh, catch weird myself. And you can catch weird on November 4th, On the Roku channel, Blonde will premiere at the Venice Film Festival and then hit Netflix on September 28th. So what movies are we most anticipating this fall? We'll answer that question when we come back and pose a few more of our own for our fall movie preview. Plus, a last look back at summer with results of the film spotting poll, asking you to choose between Nope and Top Gun Maverick. Stay with us. What is your heart's desire? I do have a question. What does one do with three wishes? You'll see. Idris Elba and Tilda Swinton in the trailer for 3,000 Years of Longing, the latest from director George Miller. Is it possible, Josh, that someone used one of their wishes to unite Swinton, Elba, and the director of Mad Max Fury Road? I mean, not a bad creative team they've got there. The plot description of 3,000 Years of Longing? 
a lonely woman, Swinton, discovers an ancient bottle while on a trip to Istanbul and unleashes a djinn, played by Elba, who offers her three wishes. Yeah, I look back at our movie preview in January, and this was really the year, or it could be, the year of Swinton. I don't know if all of those films will come out or not that were mentioned back on that 2022 movie preview, but six or seven movies, potentially, could star Tilda Swinton, and this one was among my most anticipated. It's going to open in wide release this weekend. We will discuss it on next week's show. Along with that, our Summer of Stanwyck Marathon continues with 1941's Ball of Fire. Gary Cooper starring there with Stanwyck. Howard Hawks directing a script by, how about this, Billy Wilder and Charles Brackett. It seems bulletproof, Josh. Yeah, I mean, I kept seeing these names scroll down the screen as the as the movie started and couldn't believe it. And yeah, I think fair to say Ball of Fire delivers. Okay. Full marathon details at filmspotting.net slash marathons. And a quick note for our Criterion Channel subscribers out there. The final film in the marathon, Billy Wilder's Double Indemnity, leaves the channel on August 31st. So maybe your last chance to catch up with it there. We do have a little bit of housekeeping before we get back to our fall movie preview. I was off last week. My Sincere gratitude, not only to you, Josh, but to Mariah Gates and to Michael Phillips filling in for me. Seems like a great response to the show and both conversations. I haven't had a chance to listen yet because not only have I not seen Bodies, 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 I haven't seen Meet John Doe. I've got a double dip Stanwick for next week. All right. Well, that should be fun. And yeah, my thanks as well to Mariah and Michael. Really good conversations with both of them. Mariah had been on the show before as a guest Mm -hmm. with the both of us, but this was my first time co-hosting with her, and she was a delight. As always, the last time the two of us did a show together, it was a couple weeks ago, we tried something new, a movie draft. Our subject was A24 movies in honor of the indie distributor's 10th anniversary. No, I didn't take last week off, Josh, to recover from you choosing Greta Gerwig's Lady Bird before I could. In a shocking move. You weren't stewing for (laughs) for two weeks. I wasn't, though. I might have been stewing about the results of the draft because we set it up as a bit of a competition. We were going to give listeners an opportunity to weigh in and determine who picked the better team. Now, we also both did acknowledge that while we wanted to win and we wanted to have acclaimed lists, we also were trying to be personal with our choices and not necessarily catering to a broad audience. And that's probably my way of setting up the fact that, Oh my God, did I get killed? (laughs) Your list in retrospect seems very personal. (laughs) Here is my list. And I really thought that with at least these first six, Josh, even though you crush me by taking lady bird, I thought these first six put me in a really good spot to win the poll. Ex machina, followed by Moonlight, Under the Skin, First Cow, Spring Breakers, Uncut Gems. Seventh, I had While We're Young, Noah Baumbach, that is an Adam favorite, Cresha from Trey Edward Schultz, The Souvenir Part 2, and another very Adam choice. I went with Locke as my 10th A24 film. Your choices, your much better choices apparently were. Well, I couldn't resist 
taking Lady Bird when I won the first choice for the draft. So I'll never had to forgive do it. you. Had to do it. Glad I did. I think it worked for me. But yeah, then, you know, went with films that I like even better, though I am as well a big fan of Lady Bird. I like After Yang even better. I like First Reformed even better. Probably like The Florida Project even better. Those were my two through four. Then I went with a recent title, Everything, Everywhere, All at Once. The Green Knight, another one from this year, Marcel the Shell with Shoes on, The Witch, Zola, that's probably my most personal one. And yeah, my discovery, didn't realize, snatched it at the last minute. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I think it did end up helping me a little bit in the competition. Yorgos Lanthimos' The Lobster. So we did give listeners a chance to weigh in. And we did it in two different places. You could have voted on Twitter or you could have voted over at filmspotting.net. We asked simply who had the best A24 draft. And Josh, it didn't matter where people were voting because on the website, it was Josh by a whopping 74% to my meager 26%. And on Twitter, where we had a few more votes, it was 73 to 27. I fared only slightly better over on Twitter. I have a little bit of support here. We heard from Dalton S who said, Josh has this one in the bag, just absolute heavy hitters on his list. But Jeremy Laffery was defending me. Cannot believe Adam is getting killed in this poll. He has Ex Machina, Moonlight, Under the Skin, First Cow, and Uncut Gems. Not to mention his list contains, in my opinion, a wider breadth of titles. Josh's has four titles from the last two years, whereas Adam's list stretches over a broader history. I wonder if recency bias plays a part in the huge margin of victory. Yes, Jeremy, we're going with that theory. I love Marcel after Yang and everything everywhere as much as the next guy, but I'll take the ones that have sat with me longer and have had more time to establish themselves as modern classics. Yes, I went with the vintage wine. Mine will age and only get better with time, Josh. And, you know, you went for you went for the shot. I went for the what? You went for the shot, just the quick hit, oh. the sudden rush of liquor. Okay. I'm, I'm trying Got to keep it. that motif going. Got it. Okay. <laughs> So I won't I won't say that wasn't a factor in my um, hastily put together strategy as we were drafting, but I'll also say there's a good chance that both Marcel and Everything Everywhere are going to be on my top 10 list this year. So uh, that was not purely a grab for recency bias. Adam, also, I got to say, I was proud of your list. I was proud you went this personal and did not go for... Uh, maybe the more popular picks. Mm -hmm. I love to see that. Uh, I wish, I do wish, not that you had won, but that you Uh had been rewarded with, you know, I don't know, maybe, maybe you could have broken 30%. That would, Mm. that would have been nice. We did hear one more comment here from Darren. Honestly, I would gladly attend either of these film festivals. That is another way we both thought about compiling these teams. Lady Bird, Darren says, is my personal favorite, but Moonlight isn't far behind. So it's actually the Florida Project that tipped the scale to Josh's list for me. My God, is it possible to name three movies from the last decade with more heart? Thanks for putting a spotlight on just how incredible and important A24 is. Josh, I just have to praise you for a second. Nobody is better at being both magnanimous and patronizing <laughs> at the same time. I don't, that was I have no, impressive. I have no idea what you're talking about. Uh, I should also <laughs> note, <laughs> it was amusing to me. So we did this show. The next week, you were off. I'm working with Mariah and Michael, you know, kind of busy with that. Really forgot 
this was going on, this whole vote. Um, I think it tweeted about it once. And then it was it was kind of it seemed to be radio silence on social media in terms from film spotting headquarters. And I thought, that's a good sign. I think <laughs> I think I'm in a good place considering yeah. we did this draft. There was possibly one tweet and nothing else. I really did think I was going to win at the end of it. Even picking Locke, even picking while we're young, I really thought I was going to win. I thought it might be close, but I usually have my finger on the pulse of Film Spotting Nation. I am not the one usually getting voted against. And boy, was I misguided here, Josh. As someone who's on the other side of this quite often, you'll be okay. You'll be fine. <laughs> I will. We are definitely going to re-employ the draft concept. We haven't settled on what the next topic would be. Do you have any in mind, Josh? I saw someone suggest, and this one would be would be painful to lose some titles, um, but a Miyazaki draft, actually. Hmm. And so I don't know. We'd have to find a hook, obviously, to tie that one to. But yeah, there are a million ways you could go with this, right? So, so it would be fun to do again. And I have a feeling we will keep doing this concept until you win a listener vote. <laughs> <laughs> the trivia spotting approach. Exactly. Right? Keep it going until I win. That could happen. I maybe had in mind something our producer Sam said, which is that a draft might make a good concept for a live show. We've talked about that over the years. We've done mm. a few different types. We've done the, the rap party approach where we're kind of handing out awards. We've done just the screening and kind of a little intro and post-screening top five or discussion. And we've also done just a straight ahead taping of the show. We're never quite sure what the best format is for live shows. Sam wondered if a draft might be the way to go. I actually think listeners in a live setting would also yeah. really enjoy that. And it could be kind of interactive. And maybe then because of that, I was thinking about something we were considering for our next live show planned for the Bell House in Brooklyn. I've teased it a little bit on the show. We did move our date. We're not ready to announce anything yet, but I hope everyone loves New York in wintertime because there's probably going to be a weekend in January where yeah. we are going to be at the Bell House. We're I like finally... that you said winter, not holidays. Oh, yeah. It's, it's, it's winter. It's post-holidays. But there's going to be a weekend in January where we'll be there and we'll get to do a live show at the Bell House, the live show we intended to do back in June of 2020, obviously before COVID hit. And we talked about being in New York and the timing when we thought it would be a November show, maybe aligning with a Scorsese oeuvre review we have been anticipating. And I thought then maybe we could draft Scorsese films. Okay. I like it. We're going to have to, yeah, catch up with all those titles we were going There's to a do few. anyway a few. beforehand. But yeah, that's right. definitely, definitely potential. Okay. We would love to hear your ideas for any potential future draft feedback at filmspotting.net. And of course, if you missed that fun draft show, you can go to filmspotting.net and listen there or get it wherever you listen to podcasts. Since I was off last week, we did miss an opportunity to acknowledge the passing of a couple of movie notables, actor Anne Heche, 
director Wolfgang Peterson. Heche, this was really a surprise, dying on August 11th. She was 53, had more than 90 TV and movie credits since her start in the late 80s on The Soap and Other World. And I know you're a big fan of at least one of her films, Josh. That would be Cedar Rapids. I am. And she's actually, I know we joke about how much I love Cedar Rapids a lot, but she's one of the reasons it is such a rich film. I remember being surprised at how funny she was from what I had seen of her before that did not imagine her being in a film like this and doing so well. Jo- Joan Ostrowski Fox, the, uh, the sexual harasser of the Ed Helms character. Uh, she's really great in it, but she's probably best known for performances. Well, in the mid to late nineties in Nicole Holof center's directing debut, walking and talking quite strong there as well. Opposite Catherine Keener. They're the co-leads of that film. She played Johnny Depp's wife in Donnie Brasco also appeared in I Know What You Did Last Summer in Barry Levinson's Wag the Dog, and then Six Days and Seven Nights, where she co-starred with Harrison Ford. And, of course, she played Marion Crane in Gus Van Sant's notorious shot-for-shot remake of Psycho. Other notable roles besides Cedar Rapids, Jonathan Glazer's Birth and The Other Guys. couple final films of note, My Friend Dahmer in 2017 and The Best of Enemies in 2019 with Sam Rockwell and Taraji P. Henson. The day after Hayes died, August 12th, we lost Wolfgang Peterson, the German-born director who started his career in Germany in the 70s. His breakout film was 1982's World War II submarine thriller Das Boot, nominated for six Oscars, including a nomination for Peterson. And alas, Josh, I have not seen it. I'm a neophyte when it comes to the work of Wolfgang Peterson. I think of all of the films, at least I'm looking at in front of me, I have only seen one, and that film is In the Line of Fire from 1993 with Clint Eastwood and John Malkovich. I have not seen the pandemic scare movie Outbreak from 95, Air Force One, The Perfect Storm, or as I said, that breakout international film, Das Boot. I think you've seen, didn't you have Enemy Mine once on Thank a you. list, You're a top right. five yeah. list? Yeah, we did our list when we were talking about racism and movies that taught us about that subject That's at right. an early age or yeah. over the course of our lives. And Enemy Mine was my number five. Because I have I have fond memories of Enemy Mine, too, from my childhood and the never-ending story, of course. But Das Boot is just incredible. It is, I mean, we've had many good submarine movies since, but it's the sort of film and a particular subject that you feel like once that was made, we didn't need to go back to that topic at all. Like mm-hmm. We, we kind of had everything we needed. I'm going to throw out one, and I did this on Twitter and got some support and also got some snark back. I'm a big defender. I think I mentioned this as an aside, Adam, when we I did our top going. five Brad Pitt performances. Big defender of Troy with Pitt as Achilles. You know, that, again, is sort of one of these projects, large-scale projects that could have been a disaster. I think it's quite strong, and I think that Peterson's hand in managing that scale is is all over it. So if you are almost a Wolfgang Peterson completist and looking where to go next, and you've always resisted Troy because it sounds cheesy, I would encourage you to give it a try. You like Meet Joe Black too, so there's something about Brad Pitt with that really blonde hair that you love. Oh yeah, he's full blonde in Troy. After a little summer hiatus, our monthly online pub-style trivia game, Trivia Spotting, returns in September. It is Trivia Spotting 2020. 
2022. This is something we began in 2020 during the pandemic, like a lot of folks looking for ways to connect with each other. Of course, in our case, looking for ways to connect with our listeners, especially our patrons over on Patreon, and try to get out of the house without actually leaving the house. And it was always a thing we did exclusively for our family members on Patreon. Now, our family members get first access to tickets, they get a discount on tickets, but we're opening it up to the wider film spotting audience. Friday, September 16th, all done over Zoom, 7.30 p.m. Central Time. Usually have somewhere between seven and nine teams with special guest captains. You might get put on a team with me. I apologize in advance if you do. You might get put on a team with Josh, with our producer Sam, or some other luminary from film spotting might be your leader. It could be Michael Phillips. It could be Mariah Gates. It could be Griffin Newman, who we mentioned earlier. A lot of different stars of film criticism and film podcasting grace us with their presence on Trivia Spotting. So Josh, if someone's listening to this and they've heard us talk about it over the past several months, and they've always been maybe a little bit intrigued, but they're thinking to themselves right this very moment, the thing that a lot of people say when trivia spotting is mentioned, which is, it sounds fun, but I'm really terrible at movie trivia and I'm nervous. What yeah. would you say to them? Your participation level is totally in your control. You're never put on the spot. Um, I think we're very careful on that. The only people who are put on the spot are pretty much you and me, Adam, <laughs> I would say. And yeah. the only people who make fools of themselves fairly regularly are you and me. So it's a Funny. very, very safe environment. Um, by all means, you know, if you know your stuff and you want to jump in, there's a place for you to do that too. So you can really participate as much as you want to, but yeah, the, the spotlight is never on anyone who doesn't want it there except for, you know, maybe, maybe me. I'm a little worried after this hiatus, my, my trivia acumen, Adam mm. might be a little rusty. It won't be quite up to par uh -huh. where it usually is. We have a great quiz master in Thomas Todd, truly a professional and he'll make you feel right at home. All yeah. the listeners will, the captains will. And as Josh alluded to, you get to determine your participation. You're on a team with anywhere from six to eight or nine people. And if you know the answer, great. Shout it out and your group can discuss it. If you are clueless like me on most questions, that's fine too. You can still be part of the fun conversation. It really is about bonding with Film Spotting and Film Spotting listeners. So we hope you'll check it out. Go to filmspotting.net. There is a link right there at the top of the page. There's also a link there to buy tickets if you go to filmspotting.net slash events. Cinecloud. Cinecloud. Open J! It's in the cloud! Mm -hmm. Well, apparently, Josh, it's just one of the movies of the summer, Jordan Peele's Nope. It is time for some more poll results. These ones don't hurt me quite as much. A couple of weeks back, we maybe a little hastily asked you, what was summer 2022's best movie? And we kept it simple. We gave you just these options. Nope, not Nope, Top Gun Maverick. A lot of colons there in that answer. <laughs> or not Nope, Other. How did it come out? Well, I think we did all right with our two main choices because Other received only 14% of the vote. In terms of those two films duking it out, Cruz took it. Top Gun Maverick, 48% of the vote, 38% of the vote went to Nope. 
Janine Baptiste says Top Gun lived up to the hype, pleasantly surprised. Here's Judah Egge. Sorry, Judah, if I got that wrong. Bullet Train was dumb fun. Top Gun Maverick was militarily industrialized fun. And Bodies, Bodies, Bodies was the funniest. However, Nope is easily the movie that defined the summer for me. Watching the spectacular action set pieces live up to the highest levels of hype I had for it going in, I couldn't help but feel that I was watching Jordan Peele graduate in front of my eyes. From innovative horror auteur into something only Spielberg, Cameron, and Nolan have been in recent years. The original idea blockbuster director who commands an audience with his name alone. Here's Sam R. who says, Best movie of the summer 2022 goes to the surprisingly fresh entry into a nostalgic, hyper-masculine 80s action franchise. No, not the cringy jingoism of Top Gun Maverick, but the stylish and clever and gorgeously shot Prey. Oh, you got a good point there, Sam. Sam's on to something. I, I think for me, and I know nobody expected this, surely I didn't expect it, it would be between Prey and Nope ahead of Top Gun Maverick. Okay, I love it. Here's Tosif Khan. I voted for Nope, but I should have voted for other Neptune Frost. Which yeah, this one's come up. I love to hear that is uh, one that I've given the Golden Brick recommendation to. So thank you so much, Tosif. Here's Kyle closing us out, ignoring the small technicality that it was released in late March. RRR is everything I want from a summer spectacle. Sweeping story, new love, good versus evil, dazzling special effects. It also has a wild animal battle, a jungle battle with a bow and arrow where a man literally throws a motorcycle at the bad guy and a meat cute with a coordinated rope jump off a bridge into a train fire. And I haven't even mentioned the dance-off. What 2022 summer movie has come close to topping even one of these scenes? And our producer Sam jumps in to let us know that it came to Netflix in late May. So that's when many in the U.S. saw it. And so, Kyle, RRR probably should count as a summer movie. And it's one I still desperately need to see. Yeah, it's on my catch-up list for the end of the year, absolutely. And I do remember that being all the chatter was in late May. So absolutely accounts, Kyle. Our new poll question has us turning our backs on summer entirely. We're looking ahead to the fall this week, of course. What is your most anticipated movie of the fall movie season? As with our preview this week, we're considering movies here released between Labor Day and Thanksgiving. There are a ton of films making their debuts at some of the fall's major film fests, Toronto, Venice, New York, Chicago. But unless they have actual announced U.S. theatrical dates attached to them. We're not counting them, and neither should you, so keep those out of your poll comments. Keep those out of your other vote. Josh, give them the options. Black Panther, Wakanda Forever, Ryan Coogler returning to the series there as director, Andrew Dominic's Marilyn Monroe tale, Blonde, already one of Adam's questions, don't Worry Darling, Olivia Wilde's follow-up to Booksmart. This one stars Florence Pugh, Harry Styles, and Chris Pine. Steven Spielberg's autobiographical The Fablemans, written by Spielberg and Tony Kushner. And yes, we will also offer the option of Other. Of the four titles that we see there, Josh, for me, the answer is pretty simple. Pretty boring. Going with chalk. I'm going with Spielberg and Kushner. Of those four, the one I would see if I could only see one of them. It would be the Fablemans. Yeah, it's a clear answer for me. And unfortunately, not very interesting, but I'm with you. The Fablemans. 
You can vote now at filmspotting.net. If you leave a comment, and we hope you do, please let us know where you're listening from. A quick note, an addendum here to the poll, in the Twitter version of it that Sam posted, he didn't include Black Panther. And Spielberg's The Fablements took it with 34% of the vote. Blonde and Don't Worry Darling essentially tied for second. Other was just behind. Some of the movies that came up under the heading of Other were Gina Prince-Bythewood's The Woman King, with Viola Davis, Martin McDonough's The Banshees of Inishern, Brett Morgan's David Bowie doc, Moon Age Daydream, and a movie that might just come up here in a moment as we get back to our fall movie preview. We get back into our top five questions of the fall movie season with music from the cast reveal trailer from Netflix's Wendell and Wild that comes to the streaming service in October, not the movie I was thinking about or referencing just a moment ago. The stop-motion animated film was directed by Henry Selleck, who did Coraline and A Nightmare Before Christmas, and Monkey Bone, a.k.a. the most underrated film of 2001, according to one Josh Larson. Indeed. Oh, for sure. <laughs> the cast includes Jordan Peele and Keegan-Michael Key, who also co-wrote the script with Selleck, Angela Bassett, Bing Rames, and others. The only question I imagine you have about this one, Josh, is will Wendell and Wilde be my favorite film of the year? <laughs> I mean, sure, it's got a shot. That, that's pretty strong. I'm awfully excited about it. I have so missed stop-motion wizard Henry Selleck. Uh, you know, I'm huge on Coraline, Nightmare Before Christmas, James the Giant Peach I like a lot. Um, and yeah, big defender of Monkey Bone. Selleck hasn't made a feature since 2009's Coraline, and it's high time we get something from him, something new from him. Wendell and Wild, this is about a pair of demons. They're voiced by Jordan Peele and Keegan-Michael Key, who try to convince a girl into letting them loose. And yeah, the fact that Selleck co-wrote the script with Peele is a huge part of the draw for me. My question, Adam, what's my question about this? I'm sure you're dying to hear. You've been wondering. You're wondering, where's his question? Will Wendell and Wilde add to an already stacked year for animation? I think it was last year I lamented that I didn't do my due diligence in seeing as much animation as I usually like to. Maybe it wasn't an incredibly strong year for animation. At this point, 2022 seems to be making up for that. We've already had Marcel the Shell with Shoes On, Turning Red, The Deer King, Apollo 10 and a half. We've mentioned all of those in one capacity or another here on the show. And I have yet to catch up with Mad God, which is also stop motion, much praise. So I'm definitely going to see that one before the end of the year. I also can't wait to see how Wendell and Wild stacks up to all of those. I don't think there's a specific release date for it yet when it comes to Netflix, but it does look like it will be in October. So keep your eyes out for that in a month or so. My number three question of the fall movie season is a Josh Larson inspired one. It is. Will Josh abide a remake of his beloved Ahazard Balthazar? Oh, you're going to talk about the donkey movie. AKA, and I'm using my words very carefully here. I'm choosing them carefully. Is nothing sacred at long last? <laughs> we know we know you don't like puns, though you did express your admiration for movie titles that have a lot of punctuation in them. How do you feel about titles based on onomatopoeia? Yeah, I'm waiting for you to say this. <laughs> EO. <laughs> 
That's what like it's something from, from the, wasn't there like a Captain EO ride at Disney with Michael Jackson? Is that what you're doing? I don't know. I never, I never went on it, Josh. It is called EO and it is 84 year old Polish filmmaker, Jerzy Skolomowski's experimental remake of Robert Brisson's 1966 black and white film, which last I checked when we did our sight and sound list back mm-hmm. in 2012, you rated among your top 10 films of all time. Mm-hmm. Now, as you well know, in the Brisson, the people around Balthazar are really the story. He's the unwitting catalyst for their behavior, much of it indecent. And apparently... This film, EO, is really all about the donkey, which, Josh, you should love. Your favorite genre is immersive animal experiences. It we is. all know that. Yes, we all know that. It's in my Twitter bio. I know. But what you are not going to get here, again, it seems, is anything that is an exploration of the, the sacred or the spiritual you're going to get a film that is maybe about something a little more grounded, a little more tangible, and that's animal exploitation for meat, for fur, etc. How do you feel about this film being remade, Josh? I was shocked and appalled when I came across this in our research. I'm used to living in a world of reheats, so it should be inevitable. I also, this is obviously a different level of artist working here than just a studio trying to crank something out for cash. Mm -hmm. So sure, have a go. I think it's the sort of movie that will either be my favorite film of 2022 or cause me to quit criticism. (laughs) We'll see. We'll find out, Adam. (laughs) A wide range there, Josh. It hits theaters November 18th. Can't wait to find out which side you're on. All right. My number two question, will Nanny make a last minute bid for a golden brick nod? Our golden brick calendar, Adam, for the films, underrated films that we want to nominate, have listeners vote on, we vote on for the golden brick award at the end of the year, underseen films from upcoming artists, we should say. That calendar tends to wind down not long after Thanksgiving because we do incorporate votes from other critics and listeners. We want to make sure everyone has had a chance to see all of our nominees. So usually it winds down around that time. One potential title I've had my eye on is Nanny. This is about a Senegalese immigrant named Aisha who begins work as a nanny for an affluent couple in New York City. As she gets involved in their dysfunctional lives, she also experiences strange visions. And everything I've seen about Nanny describes it as a horror movie. Anna Diop stars as Aisha, the title character. Nikyatu Jusu makes her feature debut as a writer and director. And I first heard about Nanny from some friends of the show who saw it at Sundance, where it won the festival's top prize. Melissa Taminga, programmer at the Pickford Film Center, called it her fave of the fest so far after she saw it there. Chicago critic Robert Daniels also tweeted this. Nikyatu Jusu's Nanny? Wow. An unreal Anna Diep, lush cinematography by Rena Yang, and devastating use of folktales by Jusu. Such a smart film about the exploitation of African immigrant mothers. People need to see this movie and do the work it demands. It's worth it. So yeah, I was waiting and waiting and waiting for this to get released in time to possibly include in the book I've been working on, 
Fear Not, A Christian Appreciation of Horror Films. Seemed like it might be a fit for the chapter on ghost stories. That was the last one I wrote, but alas, my deadline came and went, and I'm still waiting for Nanny. It is going to be in theaters on November 23, and if it doesn't open wide where it comes to one near you, it's also going to be on Prime Video December 16. You can just save it for part two of your book. Okay, good plan. I mean, let's get this one up to the top of the bestseller list, and we'll have to do your own sequel, Josh. My number two fall movie question is, with Wong Kar Wai on feature film hiatus, will Decision to Leave solidify Park Chan-wook as the world's greatest purveyor of romantic longing on screen. This is another title that was very popular on Twitter as an alternative option to the titles our producer Sam listed. You may recall that Park Chan-wook's The Handmaiden was one of my favorite films of 2016. And during our top 10 roundtable show that year, I looked to A.A. Dowd from then the A.V. Club for support. And I quoted him as saying, one common problem with con artist movies is that they tend to sacrifice emotional involvement on the altar of their own cleverness, the characters taking a backseat to the twisty plot machinations. Well, here, in Decision to Leave, instead of a con artist movie, we've got another well-worn genre mix. It's the police procedural thriller whodunit that, like another Park Chanuk film, Stoker, allows critics and writers to toss around the word Hitchcockian. But my impression from various blurbs and the trailer is that Park again makes all those plot machinations secondary to the characters. The characters here, really a two-hander, a detective who falls for the widow of a possible murder victim. The official synopsis summarizes the two of them thusly, a suspect who is hiding her true feelings, a detective who suspects and desires his suspect. The suspect here, played by Tong Wei, so good in Ang Lee's Lust Caution. She was also in Michael Mann's Black Hat. And when I think about this film, and I think about movies like Stoker, and especially The Handmaiden, maybe not so much the revenge trilogy films that I also really love, though if I revisited them, I'm sure we could find some of the same themes at play. There's always that element of facade, of role-playing, of mystery for the characters and the audience to suss out. And his films are dark and they're weird, but they're also playful and they're sexy and oftentimes profound. He is one of the rare filmmakers who can pull all those combinations off. I said of The Handmaid in 2016 that it was an incredibly romantic film and there was no more beautiful film to look at frame by frame. After watching the Decision to Leave trailer, I think that line could probably apply here as well. And that was likely a major factor, Josh, in the movie earning Park Chanuk Best Director honors at Cannes this year. Oh, yeah. You can count on the visuals for sure. It, it is interesting when you put it in that context to think of him as a chronicler of romantic longing after mm-hmm. some of those early movies you right. mentioned, right? Like Old Boy, Lady Vengeance, and and I don't know, maybe maybe Stoker is sort of, I'm not a completist on him by any means, mm-hmm. so uh, this could be off base, but maybe Stoker is something of a transition film? I, I don't That's know. That's my but, sense as well yeah. with his work, yeah. All right, my number one question for our fall movie preview. Will the Fablemans be Spielberg's Roma or his Belfast? 
So yes, as we've mentioned, this has been billed as an autobiographical effort from Spielberg based on his post-war childhood in suburban Arizona. He wrote the screenplay alongside Tony Kushner. The cast includes Michelle Williams, Seth Rogen, and Paul Dano. Now, these memory projects, personal memory projects, can be hit or miss. Few have done it better than Alfonso Cuaron, who interrogated his upbringing in a Mexico City neighborhood with his Oscar-winning Roma. And then there's something like Kenneth Branagh's Belfast from last year, which the Oscars went for, but even a Branagh BFF like you, Adam, had reservations about, I did as well. So a personal attachment to material, is that going to bring out the best in Spielberg? I'm very curious to see how he handles something that is this. Obviously, there were elements. You can see it in something like E.T. and and so many of his films. You know, Close we've talked about. Yeah. Yeah. We've talked to Adam about how some of the stuff that he's not immediately thought of is actually the strength of his movies, those family dynamics. So, mm-hmm. you know, he knows how to do that. But is there something different when it's in a completely fictional narrative compared to something drawn from his actual experiences. So we will see. Real quick, this pick also gives me a chance to plug something that I'm going to do for the day job. I've mentioned it before on the show, but we have the TC Movie Club. We get together online, discuss films and filmmakers through the lens of faith. And we're going to meet at 2 p.m. Central on Saturday, October 22, to consider transcendent Spielberg. So yeah, we'll be talking about E.T. We'll be talking about Close Encounters. Maybe something also though, like 1989's Always. I just rewatched that today. A fascinating film in his filmography that's not talked about a lot. So if that sounds interesting, transcendent Spielberg, and you want to join our discussion, join the TC Movie Club, you can do that at thinkchristian.net slash movie club. We'll send you the details. We'll send you a Zoom link for the discussion on October 22. So that's thinkchristian.net slash movie club. As for Spielberg's The Fablemans, that's going to be out November 23. Always, is that the Richard Dreyfus pilot movie? Holly Hunter. And let uh-huh. me just say, I did like it, but one of those two is much stronger than the other in in the context of what Spielberg is up to there. I will not allow for any Richard Dreyfus slander on this show, Josh. I, I didn't I didn't say anything. Uh-huh. Well, I know there's no way Holly Hunter is going to be slandered on this show. That was one of the films that I had to watch for a recent Spielberg list. I think when we were rating his decades power rankings. Oh yeah, yeah. Decades. One of my blind spots there. I can't remember how I rated that film. I'll have to look it up on Letterboxd, see if I gave it a star rating. My number one question of the fall movie season is about a movie that has a pretty good size ensemble. And that ensemble includes some really talented performers like Mark Strong. But I'm just going to give you three names before I even give you the title and my question. And those names are Kate Blanchett. I could stop there. Kate Blanchett, Nina Haas, who most folks like us know from the Christian Petzold films, Barbara from Phoenix as well, and Naomi Merlant from Portrait of a Lady on Fire. Right there, that's enough for me to care a lot about this movie and want to see it. But here's my question. 16 years removed from Little Children, how worth the wait will the new Todd Fields film be? That film is Tar. No, it's not quite the 20 years between Days of Heaven and The Thin Red Line, but Fields is definitely in full-on Malick territory here. 
IndieWire and their fall movie preview says his third film following In the Bedroom and Little Children is a 158-minute original drama starring Blanchett as a renowned conductor and composer whose life begins to crumble as it crescendos towards a pivotal concert. So that makes sense, thinking about this movie and that language there in terms of it being about a conductor and a composer and this idea of it crescendoing towards something revelatory or dramatic. And it's been a while since I've seen In the Bedroom, one of my favorite films of the year. It came out 2001. I was also a fan of Little Children in 2006. But it seems appropriate, that language, Josh, because both of those films, as I recall them, hit a crescendo or have that crescendo towards a pivotal moment of violence, of character revelation as well. If you watch the teaser, it's minimalist, but intense. It gives you very little to go off of. You see Blanchett in, I think, kind of a medium close-up, super slow motion, blowing a puff of smoke out of her mouth, and eventually her face kind of being consumed and obscured by it before seeing her finally conducting Mahler's Fifth Symphony quite intensely, quite passionately. I think more notable, though, in the teaser is the cryptic, poetic voiceover that's over this really haunting Amen, Opus 35 by Henrik Gorecki. The global pandemic has had an enormous impact on our world, our culture, and our very belief systems. But there are other kinds of plagues that visit us. And whom the gods would destroy, they first make mad with power. I don't know who's doing the VO. I Googled it to try to figure it out. It kind of sounded like Fields to me, talking about God and power and sublimating your identity. I'm sure a lot of people will also be interested in this film because the score was done by Hildur Gonadotter, who wrote the score for Joker. And she became the first female composer to win the Oscar for Best Score. I seem to recall not going for the score maybe as much as most people did, including you, if I'm remembering right, Josh. I think that that was one of the real strengths of Joker for you. for sure. Was that score. But it definitely wasn't boring, and I appreciated its audacity, and I am really curious to see how Fields employs her score here. I have no clue, based on the few things I've read and that viewing of the teaser trailer a couple times, what Tar is actually about but that cast the suggestion anyway that it could be about a brilliant potentially self-destructive artist my sweet spot you know that's my favorite genre josh to go with your immersive animal experiences (laughs) and todd fields returning to the big screen i hadn't thought about it i hadn't thought about todd fields in a long time actually one of the first guests we ever had here on the show in terms of a director interview i think the fourth interview i ever did here on film spotting was in 2006 for little children had a really strong i thought then anyway 30 minute conversation with fields very thoughtful filmmaker it really hadn't occurred to me until i was researching this list that he hadn't made a film since 2006 it's crazy yeah yeah, that is. And as you talk about those two films, previous films, I think you said minimal but intense to describe the 
the trailer that you watched. Mm -hmm. And that fits my memories of both of them. Huge fan, um, along with you, of In the Bedroom. Little Children I did like, had, had more complicated feelings about, but did like it. So definitely a filmmaker. It's been too long that we've seen a work from him. We'll see Todd Field's latest in theaters October 7th. I don't think I said it, but Decision to Leave, the Park Chan-wook film, that was the basis for my number two question. That comes out October 14th. And there was one other film referenced here in my top five. It was Triangle of Sadness, the Ruben Oslin film. Part of my number five question of the fall movie year also comes out October 7th. So October should be a really good month for cinema and a really good month for some strong conversations here on Film Spotting. We do like to end these previews with a quick rundown of the films we simply are most anticipating, a more conventional approach to a movie preview. Do you have some films on that list, Josh, that didn't quite find their way into your questions? I do. My number five, we heard about Nanny, but my number four has not come up, and that is Showing Up. This is a new film from Kelly Reichert, which is always an event, especially when they star Michelle Williams, as this does. Uh, I understand that's supposed to come out in October. My number three was Wendell and Wild, which I mentioned. Number two is The Fablemans, which I mentioned, but have not brought up God's Creatures yet. This is the follow-up from director Anna Rose Homer, who won the Golden Brick here on the show for The Fits a couple of years back. God's Creatures, she is co-directing with Selah Davis, and it's set in a fishing village. Um, don't know all that much about it, except that it's a, about a mother. And let me look at the IMDb description real quickly here. Mother is torn between protecting her beloved son and her own sense of right and wrong. Uh, so... I don't care really what it's about. The Fits made my top 10. Um, Anna Rose Homer was a breakout talent when that came out. And so I'm very eager to watch whatever she does next. That's my most anticipated movie of the fall. Mm -hmm. I was definitely thinking about Anna Rose Homer's God's Creatures, but didn't quite make my list. Three of the titles that I had questions about are on my most anticipated. Right now, the top five is this. The new one from Martin McDonough. The Banshees of Inishern, Moon Age Daydream. All of these have been mentioned over the course of this show in some form or fashion. The David Bowie documentary by Brett Morgan is my number four. And I've got Decision to Leave, Park Chan-wook, three. I've got Tar, number two. I've got The Spielberg, The Fablemans, as my number one most anticipated movie of the fall. Now, at the end of this exercise, I did realize that one of the films that I think made my top five questions back in January is supposed to come out this fall. And you referenced it, Josh. It's the latest from Kelly Reichert. It's showing up. And if that is, in fact, the case, that it is going to come out this fall, it's going to bump Martin McDonough out. And showing up would probably be my number three. I'd bump down the Bowie documentary and the latest from Park Chanuk. I also have to give a quick mention to Paul Schrader's Master Gardener as one that I'm highly anticipating. Finally, I'm going to give you a title that couldn't make the list, I started trying to write the best question possible before I realized that I had to exclude it because it comes out December 2nd. But if I was redoing this list of most anticipated, including this film, Josh, it would definitely be, well, I think it would be my number one. It would bump the Spielberg for sure. And that's women talking. Did you come across this December 2nd? A follow-up by Sarah Polly 
to stories yeah. we tell. I saw with Francis McDormand looks and Rooney Mara and Jesse Buckley. Wow. If you're not familiar with it, and I haven't read the Miriam Taves book that it's based on women talking, it seems like pretty harrowing stuff and seems like perfect subject matter for an incisive filmmaker and sensitive filmmaker like Sarah Polly. So an honorable mention, even though technically I'm not supposed to mention it, that film is the first one on any preview I looked at that that jumped out to me, Josh. Yeah, looks great and saw it didn't quite make our cutoff, so did not include it myself. Those are our top five most anticipated fall movies and our top five questions of the fall movie season. We would love to hear your picks or any other comments about the show. You can email us feedback at filmspotting.net. And Josh, that is our show. If you want to connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, or Letterboxd, Adam is at Filmspotting, and I'm at Larson on Film. In the show archives at Filmspotting.net, you can find reviews, interviews, and top fives going back to 2005. You can also vote in the current Film Spotting poll. Jumping off of what we did on this episode, we're asking, what's your most anticipated movie of the fall? To order show t-shirts or other merch, visit filmspotting.net slash shop, and you can subscribe to our weekly newsletter at filmspotting.net slash newsletter. Out on digital this weekend, Funny Pages, a teenage cartoonist, rejects the comforts of suburban life in a misguided quest for soul. This is the directing debut of Owen Klein, best known for playing the youngest Berkman and Noah Baumbach's The Squid and the Whale. That's an A24 film, Josh, that we need to add to our list. Samaritan is also out, starring Sylvester Stallone as the long-thought-dead vigilante of the title. He's coaxed out of retirement. He's used to that by his 13-year-old neighbor. That's on Amazon. In wide release, you can see the latest from George Miller, starring Tilda Swinton and Idris Elba. It's 3,000 Years of Longing. That's the movie we will discuss on next week's show, along with the next entry in our Barbara Stanwyck marathon, Ball of Fire. Film Spotting is produced by Golden Joe Dassault and Sam Van Hogren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show wouldn't go. Our production assistant is Betty Lavendero. Thanks also to Candace Griffiths and the listeners of the Film Spotting Advisory Board. And special thanks to everyone at WBEZ Chicago. More information is available at WBEZ.org. For Film Spotting, I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Thanks for listening. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye. Film Spotting is listener supported. Join the Film Spotting family at filmspottingfamily.com and get access to ad-free episodes, monthly bonus shows, our weekly newsletter, and for the first time, all in one place, the entire Film Spotting archive going back to 2005. That's at filmspottingfamily.com.